Welcome to the Fraudian Slip, the Identity Theft Resource Center's podcast where we talk about all things identity compromise, crime, and fraud that impact people and businesses. I'm James Lee, the COO of the ITRC, and thanks for joining us today. Or, to be more precise, welcome back to part two of our discussion of privacy laws. Last week, we talked about the movement to pass comprehensive privacy laws at the state level. Five states have done so already, California, Virginia, Colorado, Utah, and Connecticut, with as many as a dozen more states working toward the same goal. The reason most states are taking their own path to data privacy laws is simple. There isn't a federal law that would apply across the nation. There have been attempts off and on for decades, but the efforts have failed primarily because of two reasons. Now comes word from Washington that the leaders of both parties on the committees of jurisdiction in the House and the Senate are close to a deal. They've even released a discussion draft of a new law. So, what will it mean if we actually have a new federal privacy law? Back to help us understand the state of play when it comes to federal privacy legislation are two of the nation's leading privacy attorneys, Kristen Bryan and Glenn Brown from Squire Patton Boggs. And as always, we're joined by the ITRC CEO, Eva Velasquez, to give us the point of view of identity crime victims. I think it's interesting that you look at um, the federal bill, which I think I think does represent a good faith attempt at exercise. Um, I th- my, my personal take on it is, uh, at, even though it represents a compromise, um, you know, both parties had to give. At the end of the day, it's a private right of action. And I think just the existence of a private right of action, even one that does not include statutory damages, uh, one that includes, you know, a requirement to go to um, your state AG and to the FTC and notify them of your of your impending action and they you know, give them a right of sort of first refusal almost. Um, you know, even that kind of limited private right of action at the end of the day, still a private right of action and that's enough uh, to, I think, dissuade enough Republican senators, certainly from voting for it, because it's such an, it's so anathema to them. Um, you know, on the other hand, you know, I've seen a lot of um, progressive Democrats who look at that uh, private right of action and say, you know, it's basically meaningless, right? It doesn't have the kind of teeth that it's really going to get the attention of um, of businesses and really provide a negative incentive for them to do the right thing. Uh, it's got so many loopholes. It doesn't really affect what we want uh, to affect when we say we want a private right of action. So I think you, in a, you know, in an effort to split the baby, you basically ended up, you know, uh, satisfying neither party. Um, and that is, you know, sometimes is the sign of a good compromise, but the both sides have to agree to vote a vote for the compromise. And I'm not sure it's, you know, it, it will be, uh, you know, it will be um, that uh, attractive for either side. Yeah. Um, I'll also say a big open question in my mind is if um, Senator Cantwell is going to get on board with uh, yeah. the bill that was proposed as um Certainly, uh, she was behind a, a 2019 proposal, uh, you know, that um, contains some of, some of the features of uh, this new federal privacy bill under consideration. Um, but Glenn, uh, you know, uh, 
while I, I am first and foremost a litigator, uh, in, I know you mentioned that Republicans may be the holdup for uh, you know this new federal bill. And I think there are two um, competing considerations, and we'll, we'll see where they land, where uh, you're absolutely right, uh, where anytime there is a private right of action uh, for a purported violation of the statute, no matter how narrowly that's defined to you know be applied to only certain provisions, um, you know, uh, of the statute under consideration, or there is an attempt to limit uh, the remedies available where you can get, uh, you know, only, uh, say, injunctive relief or compensatory damages and attorney's fees, as is the cost here. Um, The cost of, uh, you know, litigating, um, you know, a a data privacy case is very significant still uh, for an institution. But um, that high litigation cost at the end of the day, no matter which way you dice it, still needs to be balanced against um, as you have more states uh, taking regulatory uh, measures into their own hands and seeking to pass uh, various new privacy regimes. Notwithstanding that many core features of, you know, what we're seeing at the state level uh, in terms of comprehensive privacy bills overlap, um, that still creates uh, regulatory uh, and, you know, organizational challenges. Uh, in in terms of, you know, how do you tailor your activities if you are a cup, company operating, uh, you know, nationally and even globally uh, with every single privacy law that could have a potential impact on your sales practices, marketing practices and the like? Um, well, at the end of the day, some of them may prefer the certainty in, a, you know, a uniform federal privacy law, notwithstanding its inclusion of a private right of action. Um, so I would say in, in, in part, a lot of that calculus will depend on what states continue to do, not what uh, the federal government itself is doing. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. Um, you're right. The, you know, once you account for the um, various, me- you know, mechanisms in the law uh, that kind of limit the private right of action, if you look at that, you're right. At some point, the um, cost of that is going to be outweighed by the cost of trying to comply with X number of state comprehensive privacy laws. Uh, and you're right. And, you know, it's, I think even though we've got five states with laws on the books now, there's only one that's in force, right? Uh, as more of these states come and come online uh, and are, are in effect, and, you know, you maybe you start to get um, regulatory enforcement. And then maybe also as some states like a New York or a Florida um, pass laws uh, that, you know, capture a bigger percentage of, of the nation's business, then the pain starts to get real. Right. And maybe what was uh, anathema, you know, three or four years ago looks like a good deal now. Um, yeah. because it's, it's outweighed. So I think that's a great point. And I do think there is a real cost to an organization, both financially and operationally, of trying to juggle compliance with all these various laws. I find it interesting in the, in the discussion draft that on the topic of preemption, so, you know, what you're talking about, Glenn, is, you know, the the pain threshold gets so high that, you know, they would, people would rather have the federal law versus the 50 state laws. You know, the CPRA is carved out. So California would get to continue its law in, in some shape, form, and fashion. But the state data breach laws, which are so widely varied, um, are exempt 
So, uh, yeah, so a couple of thoughts on that. Um, one uh, is I think most people read it. Uh, the state comprehensive privacy laws, including CPRA, um, would be, uh, you know, would be uh, no longer in effect. They would be uh, um, preempted by the federal bill. There's a reference in the ex- list of um, statutes that are not subject to preemption that references CCPA. That's the uh, right to uh, bring an action for a data breach, certain kinds of data breaches that are defined by the statute. But as a, as a general matter, uh, the CPRA would be preempted. Um, so, so, you know, I think, you know, you've got general preemption of all the laws we've been talking about today. You know, it's a little frustrating to look at that and then see that, you know, the Illinois Biometric Information Privacy Act, BIPA, is not preempted um, because it's such an onerous statute uh, in terms of private litigation. Um, the other the other point is that I think it makes sense that the data breach um, notification laws that are now, as I think as you pointed out, uh, earlier in our conversation, James, are in effect in all 50 states, plus I think four territories. Um, it makes sense to me that those would not be preempted because um, they're, they're really getting at different things, right? Uh, none of the statutes, uh, the state statutes that are in effect today, really provide for data breach notification in the same way that the existing data breach notice laws do. And so it's sort of outside this, I think it's been viewed as outside the scope of what legislators are trying to do when they draft one of these bills. So I think because they're kind of of its different focus, um, they the not- breach notice laws don't address, you know, for example, what kinds of data security you have to have, right? Whereas the privacy laws do. They, all they're really concerned about is if there is a certain type of data breach that meets the statutory definition, um, you know, what notice is required to be given and to whom and in what manner. Right, which is again all beyond sort of the scope of these uh, these data privacy bills. So I think it makes sense that it wasn't preempted. Um, and I think it's probably on balance a good thing. Last couple of topics I want to cover um, on this, and then we'll wrap up. And that is, um, look, the FTC is about to get a whole bunch of new toys if this passes, <laughs> and they're um, they're going to um, uh, have a lot. Of, of new work on their hands with a lot of de- statutory deadlines to get things done. One of the most interesting things there is an ID crime victims compensation fund, which we, we, we have historically dealt with um, compensation for crime victims, either through the state crime victims compensation funds that, every, that most states have, or through the federal, through the department of justice, the office of victims of crime. This is an acknowledgement that identity crimes are uh, a little bit more pervasive than they have been, and they don't fit that natural pattern of some of these other um, schemes that we have, uh, both regulatory and legislatively, to deal with. Um, Eva, good thing, bad thing. What what's the what's the view of of what we will have to help with uh, identity crime victims? You know, it's about time. Um, we have been saying for a long time that this particular crime type and population, we're, we're very dismissive of both the trauma, the emotional impacts, and the financial impacts. There seems to be this, this notion that it's all, oh, all identity crimes are is an existing credit card account, and you're going to get reimbursed. And 
you won't have any true hard costs and uh, you'll just be inconvenienced. And we know from our work in the call center talking with victims every day that nothing could be further from the truth. And the VOCA funds, the ones that you were referring to through uh, DOJ, OVC, those are not available to this crime type. They are reserved uh, for victims of violent crime. And I'm not going to argue, We I understand the resource issues, and I won't argue that, that uh, victims of uh, economic crimes, identity crimes, cyber crimes should be prioritized over that, but they aren't even in the conversation. And so this acknowledgement that being a victim of this crime can have significant financial impacts. And by the way, they, there are a lot of downstream effects to those financial impacts because when, when people are unable to meet their, their regular monthly obligations because they don't have access to their, their cash or their funds or even credit to you know bridge and, and meet that need, they can lose their homes. They can uh, lose their apartments and not be able to rent a new one, lose their vehicles and not be able to get to work and lose that job. So there's this domino effect and the acknowledgement that we need to provide some other type of resources to help uh, bridge the financial gaps that are created when you are a victim of this crime is something that we have been talking about for well over a decade. So I am very happy to see that this is finally starting to get some movement. Last question for each of you. Uh, we'll start with Kristen with you. Um, what in this bill do you think is the most beneficial and where's the la- where's the biggest landmine? I would say in terms of uh, what's most uh, beneficial, James, it's simply the fact that we may be on the brink of having, uh, you know, what I would describe overall as fairly reasonable, a comprehensive federal privacy legislation. Um, where I think regardless of whether or not you're slicing this at the individual level, um, you know, there's no rational reason for why, uh, you know, depending on your state of residency, you, you have different, uh, you know, privacy uh, rights and, and remedies. Uh, you know, I, I'd like to think we're all uh, pretty similar across the U.S., but also for the business community, um, you know, from that standpoint as well, uh, providing a, a much needed um, certainty going forward in terms of how they should tailor their activity in, in conformance with the law. Um, I, I view the introduction of this bill um, and the people who are currently endorsing it, you know, as a positive sign of progress. Glenn, as the other OG of, of, <laughs> of, the, of the data wars, um, what's your assessment? Thumbs yeah, up. I think that. Yeah, I think the best part of it is kind of to echo part of what Kristen said is it gives businesses certainty, right? You're not going to have not only certainty because you've got five different laws or whatever, however many number of laws are in effect at the time that you're trying to juggle and comply with, but also what might come down the pike next. Uh, that that creates some real uncertainty, um, not just in the form of like sleepless nights uh, or whatever, which are bad enough, but in the sense of um, delayed investment, uh, delayed um, uh, development of, of new products and services. If you don't know what's going to happen in the near to midterm, you're less likely 
to engage in in the development of new products and services, um, you know, for fear that they may run afoul of new legislation. So I think I think the certainty or you know the increased certainty helps a lot. I think one of the biggest landmines though uh, is related, which is you know does this turn into the need for uh, not just in the data industry, but in lots of industries, ad tech industry and lots of other industries, is it going to turn into like a long line developing in front of the FTC, uh, waiting to get their approval uh, for the development of a new product or service that may implicate privacy issues? I certainly hope not. Um, you know, that that's a concern anytime you've got some safe harbors or some language that suggests that, well, if you get you know, the FTC to sign off on this or that, um, then you'll get some, you know, uh, liability protection. You'll get, you know, your potential exposure will be mitigated. Uh, If it turns into sort of a de facto requirement that you get uh, the approval of the FTC, then, you know, I I think that becomes a problem because it stifles uh, innovation. Um, So, you know, it would be great to get more uniformity and more certainty from a federal law. It would be bad if you end up with a law that really stifles uh, innovation. And Eva, I know what you like. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, I think I'm going to leave it to uh, end on that high note because uh, I already said my piece about the, uh, the acknowledgement of the victims that are affected by these these issues as being victims of a crime. Well, that's the last word, but it's not the last time we'll talk about this. Thank you, Eva. Thank you, Kristen. And thank you, Glenn. If you want to learn more about Squire Patton Boggs' views on the latest legal and legislative events related to privacy, visit consumerprivacyworld, all one word, dot com. If you think you've been the victim of an identity crime or want to avoid becoming a victim, you can speak with an ITRC expert advisor on the phone. You can chat live on the web or send us an email during our normal business hours. Just visit our website at idtheftcenter.org to get started. Be sure to join us next week when our sister podcast, The Weekly Breach Breakdown, returns. Until then, thanks for listening.